Welcome to Season 7 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a fascinating journey into the lives of top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories many you've never heard before. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow this podcast through our new partnership with Last Word on Sports. Just go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcast. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly presented by Mr. Duct, Chicagoland's premier comprehensive air duct cleaning and ventilation for residential and commercial properties. They're upfront and honest. Find them on the web at mrductcleaning.com. This week we feature the best of season seven, part two. Uh, we went to three consecutive NLCSs, which to me was fabulous, including one World Series, the first in 108 years. If we want to go on the all honesty side of, of, of this podcast, I, I, I still don't weigh 155 pounds. I was angry about looking different and I was angry about the way that I got treated sometimes because it, it just felt wrong to me. And we called the pitch play and I think it was a pitch or, or, or a counter. I ended up breaking the record and it was an amazing time. The brands we own are zigzag, our uh, job, top, OCB. What an array of fabulous guests we had during season seven. And in part two, here are five more, starting with Joe Madden, the first manager to win a World Series with the Chicago Cubs in 108 years. During our time together, Madden recalled how he took over a Cubs team that was on the cusp of doing something very special. You know, if you really look back at that, and I, people talk about ready-made, I'm so pleased with that first year because look at the roster during the course of that year and all the different people that came through. There's going to be a bunch of names in there that you didn't recognize. Um, and you have to understand it was the ascension of Chris Bryant and uh, eventually uh, Edison Russell and Starlin Castro willing to move to second base. Um, and a lot of other young players, Wilson Contreras eventually make it as Mark Cobby Baez, uh, think about it. And then there was Baxter, uh, one of the uh, extra guys that made a big impact for us and um, others. I mean, just it, it's really um, kind of interesting how that all came together uh, because in the beginning of the year, I remember in spring training, um, yeah, I was really uh, eager to get started there. And I loved all, you know, there's Ad Anthony Rizzo and everybody else, wonderful guys, players. But there was still a lot of uh, question marks. And in spring training, um, there was a lot going on I didn't like. I remember one day I got upset at the team uh, running some cutoffs and relay drills. And I just, I just thought it was too cavalier. I, I think it was at that point for me, uh, the group was kind of um, content with being uh, the Cubs playing in Chicago at Wrigley field. You're still going to get sold out regardless of how well you do or not do. Um, it's iconic franchise, all the different things, lovable losers, all those things were connected in that spring training. And I didn't like that. And so we, uh, you know, we really pushed on it early and we were playing, uh, I guess, right around 500 most of that year. When we made the switch with Starlin and, and Addison and a uh, big series against the Giants in the latter part of the year, all of a sudden we became pertinent. Another 3-2. Cold strike three. Hector Houdini gets through the ninth. Cubs win. Cubs win 2-0 the final, and they sweep them. So it was... Um, you know, a lot of people look back at that and think it was all set up. Uh, there was a lot of nice pieces coming to bear and in place. But uh, what we did uh, during the course of that year and really established our culture and our personality, uh, which I think carried us for the next several years, was all born of that spring training. And the, uh, the fact that these guys all bought in 
And then eventually a lot of great moves were made and uh, guys got their feet on the ground and it became the 2016 Cubs. And those 2016 Cubs finally broke through to win the World Series. I wondered what that was like for you as a manager. Here's the 0-1. This is going to be a tough play. exhausting and you know you're flying back and uh, you land and uh, of course there's all kinds of stuff going on and uh, the way you're greeted at the airport uh, you know the ride back downtown and uh, you know people <laughs> there was a an option that we had a lot of guys wanted to go out and stay out all night and have some breakfast and and to continue the celebration that night which I passed on because I had nothing left in the tank uh, but it's a real uh, a feeling of great satisfaction um, like like nothing you've ever ex ever experienced before, from a personal level, how I got to that particular point. That you you think about those things, including your parents. My my dad's note was no no longer with us. My mom is, and uh, everybody else, your aunts, uncles, uh, your family, your wife, your kids, everybody, included in that thought. That's just how I work. That's where that's where I come from. So, all those things are a part of your thought process, and you finally lay your head down on a pillow, and then you wake up, and it's like, wow, we actually did this. And uh, knowing that the parade was going to ensue, and I really had no idea. Uh, I knew, I mean, I knew we were going to have a parade, but I had no idea it was going to have that magnitude to it. I did. I really, maybe I was being naive. I get a phone call. I don't know if it was the next morning or the morning after that from President Obama uh, because Michelle was such a, a big Cub fan growing up. And, of course, the president bringing from Chicago, too, um, or having lived there. Uh, it was really, again, and I have one of my T-shirts, May All Your Surrealisms Come True. Uh, that's the only way you can describe it because it's, it's beyond dreams. It's beyond dreams to be able to arrive at that particular point and uh, have all these wonderful things occur for you and your family. And uh, it's just, it's indescribable. I mean, you live it and then you reflect on it eventually, but I don't even know, I don't even know exactly when it all sinks in. I was reporting from a helicopter. It was a heck of an experience, a massive amount of people all over the city and downtown. You were basking in the glow, but the Cubs never made it back to the World Series. Joe, what went wrong? Nothing. It's not easy to get back to the World Series. That's the part that I get. I, I really find amusing um, because you win it. And if you look at the last, last 20 years, nobody's really repeated. I know some teams have gone back. Most recently, Houston's done a, a great job of getting there. And of course, the Giants did um, too for, during the last decade. But it's not easy to do that. Uh, we went to three consecutive NLCSs, which to me was fabulous, including one World Series, the first in 108 years. And then we run into a tough year where we, um, Milwaukee just played great at the end of the year. We had an extremely tough schedule. Right field, playable. Broxton, game over, division over. The Brewers are champions of the Central. And then 19, um, actually, uh, you know, we, we were hanging in there pretty well. And then the last month, guys got banged up and it didn't work. Two and two, Kinsler deals. Swing and a miss, got him, and it's over. 
and the Marlins are headed to the division series as they beat the Cubs 2-0 the final here and they advance to the DS. I mean, I will defend the fact that we we should have been left together longer. Um, there was more chicken on the bone there, absolutely. Uh, that we didn't get to uh, eat or consume or cook up, whatever you, however you want to describe it. Um, it just ended way too quickly, and it, I don't think it should have, quite frankly. Um, so nothing went wrong. Uh, you just don't win all the time. Other teams are good. Uh, there's adjustments that needed to be made, obviously. Um, but nothing, uh, I got nothing to lament upon, and I will defend uh, our players and how we did things. It was it was that good. It's just a matter of the fact that you're, you're not going to win it every year. Uh, but uh, we competed. I think uh, the Cub fans look back at the, those four years or four out of those five years, one of the best runs in the history of the organization. And to be part of that is pretty special. Ever see Darren Pang between the glass segments during NHL games? He's kind of a short guy, isn't he? Matter of fact, Pang was the second shortest goalie in league history and in his inimitable way, discussed how he was lured into becoming a goaltender. Oh goodness, yeah, I was just a, geez, I was a little wee guy. I mean, every every <laughs> classroom pitcher, I was that smallest guy, you know, sitting up front. And then uh, I've talked to my dad about it. And, and you know, his, <laughs> thinking, his thinking was, you were a really good forward but you're probably going to be too small. And he says, you could really catch a ball. My dad was a, like a lot of uh, our dads in, in Canada. He was a fastball pitcher, senior, senior ball. And he could, he could really pitch. And so at a young age, I would catch for him. And, uh, and he would, he just kind of put two and two together. He said, man, you don't miss very many, Like you're, you, you can really catch. And so I, I truly, he says, we need a goalie next week. And then I'm like, ah, uh, I didn't really want to be the goalie. And then I put on the equipment and the equipment's pretty cool. I, you know, even back then you had a mask, you got these cool gloves and, and my neighbor had these uh, blue, red and white painted like kind of outdoor pads basically. And, and he gave them to me. So I used them for a year. Uh, and, uh, and then what happens is, and I think a lot of athletes would say this, like, when am I going to make a change? You know, I, I tried thinking about it as a peewee, but by the time I was a peewee, I was probably the top goalie in, in, in all of the Ottawa area on a triple A team. And we always won championships. So I, I didn't really have a, I had a moment that I could say, you know what, I'm packing in the goaltending stuff. I want to be a forward. So I ended up staying there. But what I, what I did a lot was play outdoor hockey in leagues as a forward. So at least I got my, uh, you know, I, I got my uh, entertainment there and I got the challenge of still being a forward. But, uh, you know, to this day, there's some, there's some, all the guys that I know, if you ask Danny Savard or Troy Murray or Larms or like anybody, they, they tell you that number one, I probably drove them crazy uh, playing ball hockey. And I always had a tennis ball. I was always shooting balls around whenever the coaches had an optional skate and I didn't have to go in the net. I always had a forward forward skates and I'd always go out there and play forward. And, and a couple of times, I remember one time we were in Madison square garden and we're getting ready for, uh, for the game. And, I wanted to relax out where the Zambonis were before I was starting the game. So I, I grabbed one of Denny Savard's sticks and uh, I went and I played ball hockey, 15, 20 minutes. I got a, a lather on and I'm, I'm coming back in. I'm ready for the game. And Savvy's like, you remember my nickname used to be Spank. And uh, Savvy's <laughs> like, Spank? And he said, Spanky, what, 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 Spanky, what are you doing? My, that, that's my game stick you had. I've been looking for it. He gets it back and all the tape underneath is all worn off. He had to retape the stick and, 
from that point on, the trainers, they, they brought a stick for me. So I didn't have to use all the guys' sticks when I was goofing around and shooting tennis balls at the wall and getting myself ready for the game that way. So it was kind of funny. I always remember Savvy telling me, Spanky, no, that's, that's my game stick. Don't use that. We did everything. We, we played. I remember later on, I was playing maybe Major Junior Raven, and I played in the ball hockey league until Bruce Cassidy, the, the Blackhawks' first-round pick, yep. was on my junior team, the Ottawa 67s. We just won the Memorial Cup. He was one of the top players in all of uh, Canada. And he was playing in the same league I was, and he tore his ACL. And mm. it really, I mean, it set him back probably to the point, I would say, that it eliminated his opportunity to be an NHL defenseman because of that. So we got a call from our agents, all of us. That's enough. Ball hockey is done. So uh, because of Bruce Cassidy's torn ACL, we were out. You were one of the shortest goalies in NHL history. Now, there was a guy named Roy Shrimp Waters. There's a good nickname, right? And there you were, five feet five, 155 pounds. It's a pretty good achievement to succeed in the NHL. Pass is picked off. Here's a lead, a breakaway for Gartner. Gartner is in alone, shooting, paying again! What a glove save! He stopped two breakaways. Yeah, and if if we want to go on the all-honesty side of, of, of this podcast, I, I, I still don't weigh 155 pounds. So <laughs> I, uh, I'm so glad you're honest. Yeah, I, I, I cheated. Um, I got drafted uh, Major Junior A, and they did the first weigh-in for what back then they would call it the NHL Combine. And so when I heard that they were weighing us, I weighed about 128 pounds. Oh, my. And so I went, uh, went down to the locker room and I said, uh, I'll be right back. So I put on those, you know, those long one piece, uh, long underwear that we all used to wear under our equipment. They were baggy. So I put sand weights, uh, sumo style, and then I put them around my waist and I put them around my ankles. And so I, I got up to like 148 pounds or something like that, <laughs> but I, I never weighed that much. And even in the NHL, I played at 135 pounds was the, was the most I weighed in the NHL. Wow. That now that's a story I didn't know. Good, good move to uh, kind of fudge the numbers a little bit. Gotta fudge the numbers. If you're not, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. And then, you know, especially goalies back then, you know, you, we can name the goalies that were smaller. I mean, I was after Rogie Vashon, but you know, Rogie, one of the greatest and one of the smallest yep. that's, that's played the game. And, you know, in my era, you know, Mike Vernon, Pokey Reddick, yep. uh, Alan Bester, um, and then there's a couple of other guys like John Van Beesbrook was maybe in that five, nine area. And so, you know, the goalies, you know, if they saw a goalie, they said, oh, he's another small goalie. But if they, if you, if you said you're 130 pounds, that's a little light. So I think I had to do that to, to convince them that I was thicker than what I was. And, and so as it, as it turns out, I think it did help because a number is a number. And here you are, you're still saying five, five, 155 pounds. And so that's, that's good. But the honest part about it is I would be right, right near Shrimp Waters because I believe he was five, three or five four, and I think he was one hundred thirty-five pounds. And so I'd be, I'd be right there if I didn't uh, tell a couple of fibs there and put some weights in my underwear. The word is that the joke going around was you had the sixth hole, which was above your head. I imagine you weren't that enamored of that. Yeah, that was Willie. Doug Wilson always. He, oh, was it a, really? Yeah, that was Willie <laughs> that said that. I, a slapper, you know, a slapper. Uh, Dove a little bit, was going over. I thought it was going over the crossbar. I kind of, I kind of flinched a little bit, thinking it was going high. It kind of dipped low. It went off the crossbar in the net. And Doug Wilson said that right away. He said, "Well, Spank, 
That's the new six hole over your head and <laughs> off the crossbar and in. When's the last time you had your air ducts cleaned? Here's the best solution, Mr. Duct, a name Chicagoland has trusted for over 20 years. They work on your furnaces, air conditioners, and do repairs, maintenance, and installations. In other words, they're your all-around company for air quality choice and more. Mr. Duct provides on-site commercial ventilation cleaning estimates. You'd be hard-pressed to find better. So give them a call at 888-4-MR-DUCT. That's 888-467-3828. And Mr. Duct is the right choice to clean your residential dryer vents. They do a full inspection to make sure your dryers are running properly. Mr. Duct works with schools, health facilities, and office buildings to make sure you're breathing clean air. Their testimonials are endless, and with good reason. So don't think twice when you're ready to work on air ducts, dry vents, and so much more. Just think Mr. Duct. Duct, 888-4-MR-DUCT. That's 888-467-3828. And find them on the web at mrductcleaning.com. Jason Benetti's encounter was so enthralling, it made perfect sense he appears in both Best of segments. And here he's talking about how he began to adapt to having cerebral palsy, and then how people reacted to him. Yeah, I became a psych major in college, but I was not before that. <laughs> uh, I was pretty naive to it at first. I think it went in stages. You know, at first it was like, well, you know, I, I know I have to wear these braces and I know, you know, I wear casts after a surgery, but it was just kind of life, right? Like I didn't know the alternative. There was no internet for me to really know that kids didn't spend their summers in, you know, bed rehabbing or whatever it might be. And then in uh, middle school and high school, people would say stuff and I would get mad about it, but it's not like I lashed out. I just kind of kept it in. And, you know, there, there, there was always for me a little bit of a fear after I watched little miss sunshine, the plot is there's this young lady who's a pudgy young lady and she's into beauty pageant. She's like 10 or 11. Uh, and she wants to go to this beauty pageant and she qualifies because somebody had to drop out. It called the Little Miss Sunshine pageant. Her brother is older and wants to be a fighter pilot. And they convince him to go on this road trip to the beauty pageant in their VW bus uh, just by telling him that if he does, they'll let him go to flight school. And late in the movie, he's sitting in the back and he's doing a little like a travel magazine, little games in the back with the daughter. And she puts up to his face a little circle, one of those red green colorblind circles and says, what number is this? And he goes, I don't, I don't know. And she's like, no, 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 there's a number in here. And he goes, I don't know. And he realizes that he's colorblind and he finds out that you can't be a fighter pilot if you're colorblind and he gets out of the bus and he goes running down the hill and he he was he had taken a vow of silence early in the movie so he had never spoken and he runs out of the bus and goes screaming ah! right uh down the hill uh and that is the first word we hear from him in the movie if i want to fly i'll find a way to fly you do what you love and fuck the rest I became fearful at some point older in college and beyond that this career was going to be something like that in that I could get however good that I want to get. And somebody might just say, yeah, we're not going to put you on TV. 
And so I, I wanted to do everything I could to make sure that that wasn't going to happen. But, you know, I was angry about looking different and I was angry about the way that I got treated sometimes because it it just felt wrong to me. Like in college, I ended up being the sports director of WAER, the radio station at Syracuse. And the day I got the job, you know, that my friends were very excited and it was a wonderful thing and it was really cool. And then like later on in my tenure, I had given out some assignments to like, I would choose who went and did the Big East tournament and stuff like that. And on AOL Instant Messenger at the time, one of my cohorts, uh, one of my peers who didn't quite like me because I didn't give him a certain assignment, put up as an away message, uh, at least he'll be a great story for somebody's magazine one day, uh, which is just a shot at me getting the job, I guess, because I walk funny. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But that stuff kind of sticks with you. Uh, and I will say, you know, I've gotten a little bit more graceful in, in um, giving myself license to get frustrated sometimes, because when you walk the earth looking different every day, that kind of bubbles a little bit and it's frustrating. But I do, I, I will say, George, I, I have derived a lot of joy and confidence from the idea that, you know, this career has worked out despite what I look like. When you said earlier that you would get angry, I, I think to myself, a lot of us, I was a little tiny kid growing up and sometimes you would be teased and sometimes you would be bullied. And I don't know if that happened to you, the bully part, but I also thought to myself, there had to be a point in time where you said to someone, enough is enough. Did that ever happen? Yeah, it happens a lot. Even now. Yeah, I mean, people say stuff to me that is like coded language for, I think I can push you around. You know, years ago, I had somebody say, they they challenged a decision maker and they said, well, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about why Jason isn't getting better games. And I hope it's not about, a friend of mine said this, said, I hope it's not about his disability, you know, or what he looks like on camera. And the person who was the decision maker said back to that guy, oh, no, 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 we're very understanding of Jason's situation. The hell does that mean? Hmm. Understanding of my situation. I'm a sports announcer, right? Like I'm not some charity case. And so, you know, I, I don't think I, I've come to the realization that the perception I get from people in the world it's just not really going to change, right? The people who know me know what my mind can do and know how I navigate the world. But I meet people over and over again every day who have never met somebody like me or never really met somebody with a disability. Yeah, It's, it's jarring sometimes. People mean very well generally, but I do think, you know, there are some people and they know who they are who uh, who see it as some sort of sign of weakness, and that's unacceptable to me. It sounds like because you were involved in psychology that you've managed to build a wall? Yeah, it's a wall and an understanding, though, I think, too, right? Like, I think that's where my sense of humor comes in, because I do think it's really funny the reactions I get from people. Like I am a television announcer. I am a communicator by trade. But for people who don't know that, when I walk up to an airline counter and they say, hi, 
can I help? <laughs> it's just very uh, jarring. It's like a complete 180 from my actual job. Like I need, I need my plumber to say that to me because I have no idea. <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah, right. But to have a regular interaction, like that's right. my specialty. If you asked me to go skiing, I would need a very, very easy version of it, but I don't need to be talked to easily. So I, you know, most people mean very well. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean it doesn't get irritating for me to always have to go back to square one. If you want to hear more guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, all you have to do is go to Last Word on Sports on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can listen to the many wonderful interviews we've done dating back to January of 2021. We resume with the best of season seven, part two on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. What a great career Howard Griffith had in college and pro football, and he co-owns quite an NCAA record, eight touchdowns in one game, and his recall is as if it happened yesterday. You know, we're, we're out on a Saturday night, which you can imagine young people doing some things we probably had no business doing, but... <laughs> And, and I can remember these guys just talking trash. You know, we're going to beat you guys. We're going to do this. And I can remember as it was yesterday, I'm like, dude, I don't even know what you guys are talking about. I'm not even going to be playing in this game come, you know, midway through the, the, the first quarter. Because uh, we you guys don't have a chance against us. It, it's not even going to be close. So it, the, it, it really, for me, started there. But the lesson that I learned or that, that we ultimately learned in that game once it started, you know, SIU, I think, goes up 14-0. We may have scored uh, a touchdown. But anyway, it could have been 21-0 at, at a point. And one of those touchdowns, I'll never forget, um, one of the, the rules as a running back is if you're going to the right, not so much now, but particularly then, if you're going to the right, the ball needs to be in your outside arm, which means it's in your right arm. You're going to the left, it should be in your outside arm. You're going left, it should be in your left arm. So I'm lined up on the right side uh, of the formation uh, behind the tackle, and I'm getting ready to run a draw play that, that breaks off to the left. So I get the draw, everything's perfect, but I'm a little hard-headed. The ball stays in my right arm. The linebacker, Kevin Kilgallen, shoots the gap. Uh, we don't get a body on him. He takes the ball from me literally takes the ball and it, everything went in slow motion as I'm feeling the ball coming out of my arms and him spinning and he's, I'm spinning around and I see him running and now I'm trying to catch him uh, to try to stop the touchdown. One of the, uh, the defensive linemen comes and hits me in the side and I'm now I'm on the ground and I'm sitting there like, you have got to be kidding me. We're supposed to be dominating this game right now. I, I think whatever it was, whatever the score was at that time, uh, this is unbelievable. And for us to have been backed up on our own goal line, and I don't fumble the ball. He takes the ball from me, not only takes it, but takes it from me and runs it in for a touchdown. I was highly perturbed. <laughs> and so was the rest of the, the team. And that really jump-started us. And I think we ended up running off um, maybe 21 points straight uh, to get into halftime. Uh, I believe it was well, maybe 28 um, to get to halftime. 
And we're in the locker room, and guys are – we can't believe it. Because, first of all, we shouldn't be in this type of game. I think we were ranked in the top ten nationally, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. We're in halftime. John McAvick is going nuts on us. He is so upset that we're playing this way. Come in, we get into the second second half, break off the next couple of touchdowns. So I actually get to uh, number eight. And at this point, I'm like, you know, we don't need to do any more. The, the coach on the opposite side, uh, Coach Smith, who had coached with us, I believe the year or two years before, who I had a lot of respect for and really had a lot of respect in our locker room. And I didn't want to be in a position where we were trying to show them up. And McAvick looked at me. He's like, you're never going to be this close again. So you better, we'll give it one more shot. And we called the pitch play and I think it was a pitch or, or, or a counter. Second and two from the three. They turn. Here he comes. Off the end. Cuts up. Touchdown. There's the record. I ended up breaking the record, and it was an amazing time. Um, it was just one of those times. It was a special time, a special moment. I can also remember uh, one of the great college football Hall of Famers, just a young pup at the time, Dana Howard, was so excited that he wanted to uh, take this picture because his last name was Howard. Mine is Griffith. So we had a picture taken. He said Howard Griffith with the two of us. So, you know, that's one of the things, one of the things that really stuck out to me and, uh, uh, about that game. It's really amazing when you consider it. I mean, you broke yeah. the legendary Jim Brown's record. It was tied mm -hmm. 25 years later. However, yeah. the guy who tied it scored seven rushing touchdowns. Mm -hmm. You have eight. You are still yeah. singular. And you must, <laughs> to this day, you must be very proud of that. Maybe a record that isn't broken. You know what? It's one of those things. Guys have been close. It's so funny that um, I think maybe two years later, when Marshall Falk was at, with, was at uh, San Diego State, you know what type of back he was. He got close, and I just knew that okay, this this record won't last for long. But there have been some players that you know have been able to get close and been able to tie, and you know it's fun because uh, you know around that time in September. Uh, my name is mentioned when you talk about touchdown records, you talk about the Southern Illinois uh, game and just the, the anniversary of that. And, uh, you know, it's a fun time. And, and it's still a fun time to this day when, when that time of the year rolls around. It's kind of like for me, Super Bowls as well, uh, because, you know, we talk about, you know, the Bronco teams during those Super Bowl runs each year. And, you know, around, um, you know, college football in September, we talk about, you know, the touchdown record as well. Finally, Don Levin, the owner of the minor league Chicago Wolves hockey team and an entrepreneur who owns a tobacco company that includes rolling papers. So just how did he get into this rather lucrative racket? What happened was I was working at Nortel Oldsmobile. A friend of mine named Shelly Miller just got out of the Navy and I had been in the Marines. And, and Shelly said, hey, there's a store for sale called Adam's Apple. And Shelly just retired and closed the store maybe in January this year, after 52 years. So we opened the store and we bought the store from a guy named Neil Swibish. And 
he, the name Adam's apple came from his son's name was Adam. He, so he named Sir Adam's apple and had a beautiful painted window. And we didn't want to change the window. So we just kept the name. So we did that. And I bought everything in the store other than the cigarette papers, everything, t-shirts, records, tie-dye stuff, whatever. I just didn't buy the, the rolling papers. I figured, what is that for? I never heard of this thing. Well, the next week, people came in and, and everybody said, I don't care about all this other stuff. Where's the rolling papers? So I called Neil and said, Neil, you know, where, where are the rolling papers? He says, oh, here, I knew you'd call me. I'll send the the box back. And I, he brought them back. And that's the day I got into cigarette papers. It was in 1969. So over the years, we, we you know, we developed brands. We, the brands we own are Zigzag or Job. But, in, but Zigzag United States is, is sold by somebody else. Uh, job, top, OCB. Yeah, we had a bunch of them, but body. We, we've been doing this a long time. And we got some good brands. Didn't it turn into the largest roll-your-own tobacco company in the world? Uh, well, the largest paper company in the world. So I was lucky enough to meet a man in France that owned the paper mills and owned the paper uh, transfer the paper. You have to make the paper, which is an interesting story in itself. Then you have to take it and you have to bake it into a booklet. And I met this man and he called me in 2000 and said, I'm going to sell this to you. I'm going to sell it to you because I know you'll take care of this company. It was his family company. And I did. And so I bought it. And uh, so that that makes it the largest. So it's the largest in the world. Yes. It's interesting because this is not about your let's say, affinity with marijuana. It's more of a business deal. This is what it turned out to be. Yeah, I, I wasn't, no. I, I was that guy that if people smoke pot and I did it, I'd sit in the corner. I mean, it was not, I'm just not that guy. It, it, it bothered me. From, remember, I was, it's just in the 60, late 60s, early 70s that there was part of life. Like, sure, I guess it's like that way again now, but I, I couldn't. I was a designated driver all the time because I just didn't work for people. I don't mind it. I think people, you know, it's better than drinking. But for me, it would just, I, my body just couldn't deal with it. But it, it is it is an interesting paradox when you think about it, isn't it? Well, yeah, just like the not drinking bartender. Uh, and the, the, you don't have to worry about them. They're not stealing anything. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They're, but you made a lot of money off of it. I mean, this is. Yeah, that's true. Can you imagine the world of marijuana today, as opposed to when you got into that part of the business over 50 years ago? It's, it's changed dramatically for sure, but there's still a world of, when, when I got into it back in those days, there was a lot of hustlers selling paraphernalia and stuff like that. Uh, and now it's, as it's getting legal, it's getting more wild west again. And a lot of hustlers, there's some good people and there's some people out there that are, that are a little bit difficult, but the fact, you know, it, it's, we thought in 1970 or 1975 that for sure the government would change their ways. The, the concept that 50 years later, people are in prison because they smoke marijuana is it, it, it's incredible. I know uh, people that sold pipes that spent almost seven years in prison. I mean, it was, it's been, it was some, really some weird stuff that went on, but the, the war on drug has been that way. It, it, I, I don't have a dog in this fight. It's just that um, 
I'm happy to see that somebody that there's some movement. That's all I got to say about that. My great thanks to these great guests, Joe Madden, Darren Pang, Jason Benetti, Howard Griffith, and Don Levin for sharing some wonderful stories. And my thanks as always to the people behind the scenes that help make this wonderful podcast possible. TJ Reeves for putting us on the map, Will Hatzel for his crafty editing, Nick Tochi for our wonderful graphics, and to our new partner, Last Word on Sports. And to our presenting sponsor, Mr. Duct. You can find them at mrductcleaning.com. Tune in next week when we begin Season 8 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.